Remember back in March when Will Smith slapped Chris Rock at the Academy Awards after a joke directed at Smith's wife, Jada Pinkett Smith? Well, seconds before the joke, Chris Rock may have sealed his fate by uttering the word Macbeth on stage. <laughs> wow! Denzel Macbeth loved it! And almost immediately, the internet just exploded with people saying, well, he said Macbeth in the theater, and this is what happens. Some, some bad luck always befalls one. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today on the show, Macbeth's Curse. And later, a delightfully creepy Brothers Grimm fairy tale about a boy who learns to fear. But first, have you ever said the word Macbeth in a theater? Amanda Kellogg covers the long history of a spooky playhouse superstition known as Macbeth's Curse. Amanda's an English professor at Radford University. So Amanda, apparently you know a thing or two about curses, especially the Macbeth curse. I had actually never heard of the Macbeth curse. Well, I'm so glad to be introducing you to it. Uh, the Macbeth curse is Shakespeare's most popular and well-known curse. And essentially the rule is you cannot say the word Macbeth in the theater unless it can't be avoided because you are rehearsing or actually performing the play. And saying the curse in the theater is something that courts harm and danger and at least mishap. And there's a long history of people who are involved in productions being hurt, in some cases actually even being killed. And there are also uh, instances of things like theaters burning down or going bankrupt or shows having to be canceled. So just a lot of disarray that follows Shakespeare and the curse of Macbeth. I read during the infamous slap at the Oscars when, <laughs> when Chris Rock was slapped by Will Smith that he had uttered the word Macbeth before the slap. That's right. He'd been praising Denzel Washington, who just finished staging the Cohen Macbeth. And he just said something like, Macbeth, I loved it. And uh, moments later, Will Smith, when he stepped on stage, slapped him. And almost immediately, the internet just exploded with people saying, well, he said Macbeth in the theater. And this is what happens. Some, some bad luck always befalls one. Do you suspect Chris Rock knew about the Macbeth curse? I honestly, I don't know for sure, but I have felt in the way that he said it as a full sentence, right? He just said basically Macbeth, period. I loved it. That there was a sort of courting of danger in that, a sort of flaunting that I wonder if that might be intentional. And, you know, he's been in the theater for so long, it really does seem like something he would have come across. So I think it's likely, I think it's possible. I would love to ask him. I'm not a theater person, though I do enjoy plays, but. I wonder if most theater people know about the curse. I think they do. Um, you know, I have lots of friends as as a dramaturg myself. I have lots of friends who are involved in the theater, and I have often said to them, "You you don't really believe this, right? Like this isn't real, or you haven't heard of this, have you?" And always they say, "Oh yes." And here's my story about the one time I was in the theater and we did this thing, and here are all the things that happened. And so, I do think it's very well known among theater people. It's in their list of superstitions such as saying break a leg instead of good luck. It, it really sort of falls into that category of things you should and shouldn't do and say. I want to ask about some of the famous instances of mishaps, <laughs> sure. but first tell me about a friend's mishap. Oh, yes. So one of my colleagues uh, at Radford is Robin Berg, and I remember asking her about this once and her saying when she was younger and one day after rehearsal, right, the stories often occur this way where the lights are going down and the theater is empty and it's, get, it's getting dark and quiet and someone decides they're going to press their luck and say Macbeth. And in her case, uh, all of a sudden, all the lights went out, right? There was, there was some sort of light in the middle of the stage that was keeping things right for them. And all the lights went out. And of course, they screamed and ran. And it was great fun uh, and just a little scary, not, not too dangerous in that case. Yeah, scary is good. Yes. But you say there have actually been really terrible things that happened to people, some yes. lesser and some greater. Yes. Name a few of the famous through time incidents. Yeah. Ever since Macbeth was first staged, there have been problems following the play. 
people don't really start talking about those problems as a curse until around 1937 when we have Sir Laurence Olivier's production. So he is an example of someone to whom something almost dreadful happened. So Olivier was staging his performance of Macbeth at the Old Vic in London. And legend has it he was sitting on a throne on the stage and he gets up out of the throne and takes a couple of steps. And then almost immediately and inexplicably a weight falls from the rafters and crashes onto the throne he had just vacated. And so people said if he had been sitting there a moment longer, he would have been crushed by this weight. And so around the time of that production, people started saying there's something about this play and really started thinking about it as a curse. And they started looking at contemporary events like Olivier, but they also started looking back in history and seeing things like Probably the most devastating example of the Macbeth curse is the Astor Place riots. So Astor Place riots happen in 1849 in Manhattan, and they really did center on a conflict about Macbeth and the way Macbeth should be represented. These later became the Macbeth riots? That's right. Yes. They're also referred to as the Macbeth riots. And really at the heart of the issue was this question about class and culture. And so uh, we have sort of two actors staging Macbeth. One, Edwin Forrest, is an American actor. We could sort of think of him as the working class Macbeth, a sort of tough American guy. Uh, simultaneously, he's sort of pitted against William Charles MacReady, who is the British aristocratic, sort of more classic cultural Macbeth. And people were fighting over whose Macbeth is, is the right Macbeth, right? How, how Macbeth should be portrayed. And it resulted in a, in a tremendous riot. Um, many people died and over 100 people were injured as a result of this fight that, while of course it was about a number of important issues, was ostensibly a question about the, the right way to stage Macbeth. So people have looked back and said, okay, there is a classic case of the Macbeth curse. <laughs> yes. What are some of the other big ones that they found? Well, in the 18th and the 19th century, there is a rash of injury and death. None of those are especially noteworthy. Almost all of them involve a mishap related to a sword or a dagger. And it's really not surprising that this is a play where you know, swords and daggers might be deployed accidentally too harshly. Right? I mean, it's a play that has a lot of weaponry in it. Even when people aren't fighting, they're carrying daggers around a lot. And so we're really just risking danger, especially before our more sophisticated understanding of how to deal with fight choreography and props. But, you know, the legend itself, which, as I said, is unsubstantiated and sort of read backwards into the history of the play, always starts with the initial production of Macbeth, right? So the way the legend goes is that Shakespeare puts actual spells in the play. So somehow, right, and people don't always agree on how, but somehow he gets access to witch lore and he puts it in the play. And so, for example, when the Weird Sisters are saying the ingredients in their curses. Like what? Uh, like Eye of Newt, for example, right? And so all of these different things that we're going to put into a blasphemer's thumb, right? These are not made up by Shakespeare, according to the legend. They are actual witchcraft elements. And so in some versions of the story, some witches find out that Shakespeare has has purloined their language and they get mad and curse the play. And so the lore says that that first production of Macbeth was cursed and that the boy actor who was supposed to play Lady Macbeth died suddenly and that in some versions of the legend, Shakespeare himself has to step in and play Lady Macbeth. And of course, we don't know that that's true, right? There's not really an eyewitness account of that happening at the time. But that, I think, is one of the most famous stories people tell about the curse. There's also something where theaters like to play this up with audiences when they stage this play. Tell me about that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there are lots of reasons why people are interested in the curse. On a pragmatic level, I think it can be really good marketing. I think some people would love to come to the theater just to see what happens if you go see a play that's bad luck. But for a lot of theaters, they have been able to take advantage of this to set a certain kind of tone for the production of Macbeth they're staging. And so there are theaters, for example, that will post signs on the doors um, outside outside the theater that say, 
something like the producer of this this play or the director of this play asks that once you step through these doors, you not say the name of this play. And so even if you didn't know about the curse or you weren't really clear on it, something like that, right, a, a prohibition as you're entering the theater, I think makes it feel really creepy, really mysterious and a little bit dangerous. And you could see how that might really set the tone for the kind of production that's going to be lights down, you know, put, cut on the dry ice fog machine and let's really make this scary. Is there a way that theater people have come up with to say reverse the curse or ward <laughs> off the curse, like throwing salt over your shoulder or something like that? Oh, yes. Lots of troops have their own curse reversal strategy, but... I would say there are a couple of pretty common practices. So one is um, if you say Macbeth in the theater, you might be asked to leave the theater and then engage in some sort of cleansing ritual that might involve running around the building or spinning in circles or spitting or saying a series of words, usually a specific series of curse words, uh, and then knocking on the theater to be let back in. Uh, so open locks whoever knocks, right, as they say in Macbeth. Um Others, though, ask you to do things like quote from the play. So maybe you have to say the dagger speech or to quote from a different play. Uh, so a famous example is sometimes you have to quote from Merchant of Venice, which Paul Menzer says, I guess, is the opposite of Macbeth. <laughs> so it really depends on where you are. And my advice would be if you are thinking about engaging in the curse, check with your local theater authorities to find out what you're going to have to do to get rid of it to make sure it's worth it. <laughs> well, Amanda Kellogg, this is so much fun. Thank you for talking with me and with good reason. It was my pleasure. And everyone, uh, be careful what you say in the theater. Good. Right. <laughs> Amanda Kellogg is an English professor at Radford University. As a kid, my next guest was frightened by the Grimm's fairy tale called The Boy Who Went Forth to Learn to Shudder. Anna Martin Beecher says that story haunted her for years, until 2017, when she wrote a play called Skin of the Teeth, based on that fairy tale, and performed by actor Daniel Hum. Anna Martin Beecher is an author, poet, playwright, and English professor at the University of Virginia. Anna, I read and reread Grimm's fairy tales when I was young, but I never heard of the boy who went forth to learn to shudder. It's such a great title. Did you read it when you were little? I didn't read it, actually, as a child. I came across it as part of Jim Henson's The Storyteller, which was this fabulous TV show, uh, which I feel not enough people have heard of, but was a huge part of my childhood. And then I read it as a grown-up. What intrigued you about the boy who went forth to learn to shudder? So initially, I just thought it was a great story. We have this young boy who in some ways has this thing we might think of as a gift. You know, most of us in our lives think of fear as a problem to be resolved, but it sets him apart as strange and he really knows that there's a sort of missing piece in his life and wants to be able to feel fear. And those around him find him peculiar and sort of troubling because of this. And he doesn't really fit into life. And his father says, you know, get out in the world and go and learn something. And he thinks, well, I'm going to go and learn what fear is, which I don't think is what his father had in mind. And this sets him on a strange path where he ends up undertaking various challenges. He goes to a sort of haunted castle where he meets various terrifying animals. A man tumbles down the chimney who is actually just half a man and plays skittles with him, but the skittles are made of bones. And none of this ever scares him. And then in the original tale, it ends with this very strange twist. Um, and I love the way the old fairy tales do this. They've all been sort of neatened up and made more a sort of coherently narrative in their modern versions. But in the older version, sometimes the endings are sort of wonderfully, charmingly anticlimactic. He's gone through all of these trials and tribulations and then he 
gets married to the king's daughter because he's really proved to himself here. So that's the classic fairy tale reward. And her chambermaid one night tips a bucket of minnows into his bed. And finally, when all the little fish are squirming over his body, he understands what fear is. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, I finally learned how to make my skin crawl. <laughs> yes. So, I mean, it's just a great story. You asked what got me interested in it. That's the initial, it's just a fabulous story. But underneath it is this much more sort of strange and serious thing of what is it to be a person who feels they have a missing piece? And I think that's actually quite relatable. Who among us has not felt other at some moment in our life? So you, not long ago, created your own theater version of this called Skin of the Teeth. Tell me about Skin of the Teeth. So I created Skin of the Teeth in 2016 with my theater company, Fat Content. We've been working together for a really long time, since about 2007. And in our version of the story, which I wrote, but really created very collaboratively with the director, Rachel Lincoln, and the actor, Daniel Holm, our version really focuses on the loneliness of this figure. We have this young boy who we called Nicholas, who lives in a British seaside town, a sort of down-at-heel place, a sort of forgotten place. And, oh, he really wants to feel fear. People around him can tell that something is missing in him. And we're really interested in the vulnerability of a person who, one, feels different, and two, perhaps doesn't have some of the gifts that fear gives us. I think our intuitions about what is safe and what isn't safe are so important in life. And Nicholas doesn't have that, so he doesn't know who to trust. And he sort of falls in with a group of very strange and dangerous characters who take him to the city. And then he goes through the series of challenges. He's desperate to feel fear, so he will do things that are inadvisable and He's really being taken advantage of by this criminal group. It sounds very sort of gritty, I suppose, in tone, which on one level it is, mm -hmm. but also our version of it was primarily just surreal. Um, I think of the world that he's in as perilous, but also enchanting, kind of dirty and rough and grimy and also tinged with the magic of fairy tale. Let me play for you a clip of the actor Daniel Holm performing a moment in the play where someone in his life is trying to teach him about fear and things do not go too well. Next thing, it's night and Dad's downstairs talking to a man everyone calls the priest at our table. The priest has dry mouth corners and spiky teeth like a mountain range. I asked him what he was going to do and he told me he'd learned to shudder. <laughs> the two of them laughed together like they know things no one else in the world has heard of. And the priest said, I'll stop this shudder talk. I'll scare that boy. Next day, Dad told me I was to go and help the priest down the chip shop. And there was a little twitch at the corners of his mouth like he knew things I didn't. But I thought, you're wrong. There's lots of things I know. I am full of life like a seed, rattling under the ground, ready to burst up and say, I am here in the world. The chip shop. The priest tells me to wait until night, then go down into the basement to clean it out and scare away the rats and spiders. In the stairwell, I hear a thin howl. Who's there? I hear my name whispered, a little laugh echoing over the hard steps. But I keep moving. Then I hear a wail right next to my ear, so loud it puts tears in my eyes and a sick feeling in my throat. And I push. And I hear them bash every step down to the bottom. It was a ghost. 
it was all white. Someone wakes me, shaking my shoulders. And my first thought is that I've slept too long because it was late when I finished mopping, emptied out my bucket to make my way upstairs to sleep on a sofa in the priest's flat that smells of fish and fat. But it is Dad. His eyes are big. And he says, Nicholas, you hurt the priest. And I don't know what he's talking about. And I wonder if the ghost did it, but he tells me the ghost was the priest, dressed in a white sheet. I've broken his collarbone, and one of his ribs has speared his lung. So what I love about Daniel's performance here is, I think he captures this relationship with fear that young Nicholas has, where he's actually really compelled by it and drawn to it. But perhaps we also hear in his voice just how vulnerable and sort of guileless that makes him. I read that you actually had talked to a friend who had been working to help a young man who had had difficulties, who you also saw as vulnerable because he did not have sufficient fear or knowledge of the terrors out there. Yes, so a friend of mine was working in social work at the time when I was writing this play and just speaking with him, I came to understand how many people fall into really dangerous situations, not because they are, you know, bad people or have nefarious intent in any way, but because they cannot assess character of others and they want to fit in and they're perhaps people who have felt strange and felt at odds with others and are so hungry for friendship that they can be very easily manipulated. So another clip that we can share with you is a moment in the play when young Nicholas is with Mr. Bacon, this figure who's picked him up and taken him under his wing and out of his small town into this much more dangerous world. And... At this moment, Mr. Bacon is trying to convince Nicholas to do something, but really all through the guise of a friendship that Nicholas is so very hungry for. Has it ever occurred to you, Nick, that you might be looking in the wrong place for fear? Mr. Bacon takes one beer from his right pocket, one from his left, and somehow they are cold. He presses a can against my cheek and says magic. Then he tells me about how, when he was a kid, he'd creep out at night. Alone. So late, it was early. Past closed shops and sleeping bus stops. He'd go knocking on people's doors. Old women who lived by themselves. He'd listen to them getting up, shocked, clattering down the stairs to answer, afraid of what might have happened at that hour. They'd only open the door a little bit at first, but then fully when they saw him, because he would smile and go all small and bring a bit of shine out, be young and nice to look at and have a sort of gentleness so that they'd say later, he did not seem like a thief. But then he would put all that away draw himself in and up and say, what time is it? Or, can I have a glass of water? Do another smile, but not a nice one. Do you get it? It's a rush to scare someone, Nick. Suddenly the wind blows cold and she remembers she's got nothing on under that green flannel dressing gown and you're scared too. Your heart's punching you from the inside. Mr. Bacon grabs my shoulder and starts punching my chest over and over with his fist. Your heart's smacking you like that from the inside. Boom. Boom. It's a powerful thing. See, Nick, you don't scare when someone hurts you. But what if you hurt them? And this moment, this moment leads us really into the climax of the play, where... Uh, Nicholas is involved in a pretty intense act of violence. 
Does Nicholas ever learn to feel fear? So, at the end of the play, Nicholas feels this profound loneliness. He says, I feel a big fat sadness, a whole white moon in my belly, and I wonder why I do not have a shudder within me. And he's wondering, why am I so strange? Why am I so different? And he thinks to himself, is this perhaps a sort of fear? And that's the closest that he gets. We don't offer him in our version the bucket of fish tipped into the bed or anything quite so sort of neat and twisty as that. Sort of open up the ambiguity. We want the audience to leave the play questioning, what is fear? What does it truly mean to be afraid? And... To me, that really honours what fairy tales are for. Fairy tales are sometimes thought of as sort of parables, things that teach us lessons about life, neat little lessons about how we should behave. But I actually think fairy tales are invitations to mystery, you know, things that open us up to questions about the human condition. So have you developed any U.S. traditions now that you're stateside when it comes to Halloween as opposed to the celebrations you're fond of in England? Halloween is vastly different in the U.S. and I think it's wonderful here. There's such a sense of everyone can get involved, whereas I'd say in the U.K., Halloween is more for kids. And also in the U.K., if you dress up for Halloween, you have to be something scary, Whereas here, you can dress up as anything. It's just much more of a big free-for-all costume party. So I am currently trying to work out a three-person costume that I can have with my husband and my baby. It might be what? What are some of your ideas? Oh, goodness. Uh, (laughs) I quite like the idea of uh, a lion, a tiger and a bear for the Wizard of Oz uh, phrase. (laughs) I don't know which is best for the baby. There's a tradition at your university, the University of Virginia, where townspeople and university staff people come dressed to the nines for Halloween and trick-or-treat among the student dormitories that line the lawn. Will you do that? I hope so. Um, I think we should. I saw a wonderful costume there a couple of years ago where there were children and um, Dalmatians in a family, and the Dalmatians were dressed as Cruella de Vil, and the children were dressed as Dalmatians. <laughs> oh, that's a great twist. Anna Martin Beecher, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Thank you so much for having me. Anna Martin Beecher is an author, poet, playwright, and English professor at the University of Virginia. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason at Virginia Humanities. Halloween and Scream are some of the most blood-curdling, panic-inducing slasher movies, but they're also more than just jump scares and gore. My next guest is Jennifer McLawhorn. She says slasher movies also open a window into important social anxieties around gender. Jennifer recently graduated from Old Dominion University with a master's in humanities. Jennifer, when you were growing up, your family was into scary things. I understand you actually grew up with ghost stories rather than nursery rhymes. Yeah, I did. My mother is very, very into ghost stories. I grew up with horror fans in my house. I did not like those stories, but my mom had all of those Ghosts of Virginia books, and she would read us those for a bedtime story. So, for example, Grace Sherwood, the story of the Witch of Pungo, That was my number one bedtime story. I've heard of that. Who was the Witch of Pungo? This was somewhere near Virginia Beach, right? Yeah. So if you are ever out in in Virginia Beach near Witch Duck, you can come across the story of the Witch of Pungo. It's this woman in sometime in the 1700s. She was convicted of being a witch. She was tied up with her right thumb on her left toe and then vice versa. And then she was ducked into this water, which is where a witch duck comes from. Surprisingly, she did float, which would have meant she was a witch, but she wasn't sentenced to death after that. And then a few years ago, Governor Tim Kaine actually pardoned her. But if you're ever out there in that area, there is a statue where you can actually see her. 
So how did you go from really being scared of horror movies and not wanting to watch shows like that into loving them, which you later came to do? Yeah. Um, in my early 20s or so, I watched Scream for the first time, and I absolutely fell in love with it. I thought it was more of a comedy. It's still a slasher, but it's very comedic. And then I also started watching American Horror Story at the request of my sister, and we kind of bonded over that. And that's just kind of how it sort of snowballed. But yeah, no, I love horror now. You've looked especially at three of the early slasher movies. One of them was Halloween that came out in 1978, then Sleepaway Camp from 1983, and Scream, which first came out in 1996. Describe each of those and how you saw sort of modern anxieties playing out in them. I started with Halloween in the 70s. Mostly because it is one of the original slashers, but it also very simply looks at social anxieties regarding sexual liberation. You had a rise in second wave feminism about liberating the female body, about having more more autonomy, more control over your own self. And so Halloween, it takes place on Halloween night, obviously. Halloween night. A small American town, 15 years ago. And this man, Michael Myers, has escaped from some kind of facility where he was held after he killed his sister when he was six years old. So now that he's an adult, he has escaped. And he starts to stalk these young women in high school. And he's stalking Lori, especially Jamie Lee Curtis's character, and kind of just watching her. And she she obviously feels that she's being watched. And as the film goes on, anytime one of the characters engages in sexual intercourse or anything that's not considered virginal or a good girl thing to do, he commits these acts against them. He stabs them, stabs their boyfriends, and it kind of leads up until he tries to kill Lori Strode. He's obviously not successful because with any slasher, the final girl, the, the one at the end who kills the slasher, she always survives. But with this one, it kind of tries to set up some sequels in the future where he he was killed, but he wasn't really killed. It's it's one of those things that happens with a lot of slasher films. Is that true that every slasher film has something called a final girl who has a certain kind of character and morality? Yeah, so final girl um, is not my term. It comes from Carol Clover's book, Men, Women, and Chainsaws, which I think is a fantastic title. But in it, she kind of phrases a final girl as this virginal hero that male audiences can really relate to. Number one, she is always virginal. She's a bit of a, I don't like to say tomboy, but she doesn't necessarily dress very femininely. And she always is the one to overcome the slasher by the end of the film. What about Sleepaway Camp? Tell me the plot of that. This was in 1983. Yeah, Sleepaway Camp... I, I wanted to look at just because it's a little bit different in how it looks at gender. So it's set up a very similar way to Friday the 13th, where it takes place at a summer camp. And this this girl, Angela, and her cousin are out at the summer camp. And there is a masked killer who is going through and killing all of these camp goers. However, the film is different and kind of breaks away from slasher tradition in that it kind of merges the final girl trope or the final girl character with the slasher character in that it reveals Angela to be a trans character, but also the murderer. Sleepaway Camp has drawn criticism for transgender representation. How so? What was the controversy? So for the last frame of the film, it's frozen in time. And it, you can see it's full frontal nudity of Angela's character after she has killed her, her love interest. And the last line of the film is not, she's a murderer, it's she's a boy, as if this trans reveal is 
somehow more shocking than murder. And by framing Angela in this frozen state with this monstrous hissing sound in the background and this really eerie music, it just really depicts trans people as monstrous, which is not what we want to do. And that's something that I really focused on was that last frame with how it was depicting people who do not adhere to a specific gender binary. You know, it's the hard thing about horror movies and and scary movies in general. They're always looking for the individual or the group of people you can demonize. And that changes madly over the decades, right? Yeah. So, you know, with 70s, with Halloween, you look at sexual liberation. Um, with the 80s, I looked at this where that looked more at um, gender identity I feel like horror as a genre, like a broader genre, it has this ability to really look at the most taboo of subjects and really tackle them. Maybe it's because horror is a bit of a safer space because it's fiction and we, we you know, we that's always the excuse is, well, this is fiction. We can look at this. We can use it as a way to kind of understand why we feel the way we do. And that even continues on to when I look into the 90s with Scream. Tell me about Scream. I haven't seen it. You know, the only one of these I ever saw was Friday the 13th. I've seen clips and spoofs of tons of them, right? Mm -hmm. But I saw Friday the 13th and I had such fears everywhere I went or whenever I was alone. All I could imagine was you know, opening the door to the bathroom when I was alone in the house and having somebody swinging at me. And it terrified me so much I couldn't watch any others. <laughs> yeah, no, that's exactly why I think like a film like Scream was so influential and why it really stuck with people because it kind of plays on that fear of being watched. When it came out in 1996, Wes Craven really played with the slasher tropes. And it's kind of a callback to those earlier films from the 70s and 80s, but it does try to reinvigorate the genre and make it a bit more fresh. Where you have a character like Sydney, who is played by Nev Campbell, she partway through the film realizes this is kind of playing out like a slasher film. And so she uh -huh. realizes her place in it as a final girl. And she knows all of these rules where she has to stay virginal, she has to do such and such in order to survive by the end. And I just, I think Scream is a really wonderful introduction into the genre. Can you play one of the scenes that you just love from that film that really illustrates some of what you see? Yeah. So the film opens up with Drew Barrymore's character, Casey, just at home alone. It's at night. She's making popcorn. And the phone rings. Uh, hello? Why don't you want to talk to me? Who is this? You tell me your name, I'll tell you mine. <laughs> and at first she thinks it's somebody who's called a wrong number, but she hangs up, the person calls again and wants to kind of talk to her. And is a little bit flirtatious in how he speaks to her. So you got a boyfriend? <laughs> Why? You want to ask me out on a date? Maybe. Do you have a boyfriend? And then no. he makes a comment about her hair. Why do you want to know my name? I want to know who I'm looking at. What did you say? As soon as he says something like that, that's when she realizes that he's actually seeing her in real time. And then all of a sudden, you can see how she went from being very comfortable at her own home to really being on high alert. Can you handle that? Blondie. Ah, this is exactly what I'm talking about. It is my worst fear. She's locking every see-through door in the house, and they're a gazillion, right? But he gets her. He gets her. He does. And she, even though she's in her house and she's locked all these doors, which are, are there are a lot, to, to be honest, there are a lot of doors in her house. Yeah. And so she she's runs around, she locks them all. 
And then she makes this mistake that a lot of people have called out is that she leaves the house because she no longer feels safe inside. So she goes outside where Ghostface, the, the killer, is. And unfortunately, he he does stab her and she does die. And that's just the first few minutes right before the title card comes out. You know, I could see loving to watch these films with a group of friends. It'd be so much more fun with everybody screaming together or, you know, hiding eyes. Oh, yeah. This is definitely something that you should watch with people. I would recommend a lot of people with the lights on and like a nice big bowl of popcorn, definitely. Um, What about you this year for Halloween? Is there a scary movie that you like to watch every year or with somebody? Um. I always recommend Trick or Treat for Halloween just because that's a, that's a funny one. And then another one would be Tucker and Dale versus Evil. I think that one is hilarious and everybody should watch that one. Any of the old ones that you think are really worth going back to see if people haven't seen them yet? I think Nightmare on Elm Street is really great just because I also really like that 80s soundtrack. And that's also a Wes Craven film. So, of course, I'm going to love that one. Um, But if you are brand new to the slasher genre, you should 100% watch Nightmare on Elm Street. Well, Jennifer McLawhorn, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Thank you so much for having me. Jennifer McLawhorn recently graduated from Old Dominion University with a master's in humanities. If you can believe it, the first horror movies had no sound. Classics like Nosferatu and The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari came out in the 1920s during the silent film era. Jenny Taylor is a German studies professor at William & Mary. She says the roots of the horror movie genre can be traced back to Germany's Weimar Republic. The Weimar Republic uh, begins in 1918 after the end of World War I and extends until 1933 when the Nazis get elected um, and Hitler comes to power. After World War I, first of all, they had lost a war and many injured young men were coming home and suddenly they had a democracy. And so there was a lot of instability in the country, uh, lots of inflation. They owed reparations to the countries that had won. And a lot of I would say anxiety about identity, about masculinity, about what does it mean to be a German? What does it mean to be a man after such a terrible war? But it was also a time of enormous innovation. So in the Weimar Republic, Germans were winning Nobel Prizes for chemistry and physics. And there was just so much innovation happening and um, unfortunately came to a close very fast in 1933. Why do you think the horror movie genre took off during this period? Why horror movies after the war? Well, um, (laughs) one interesting thing is that there were no horror films in the Nazi period. And so I read the Weimar period as a time when Germans were allowed to or encouraged to investigate their anxieties and do that on the screen. Siegfried Krakauer, who was a film critic at the time in the 20s and who moved to the United States and wrote a book about German film called From Caligari to Hitler, he read the horror films as reflections of sort of mass anxiety and mass desire for a leader, somebody who would hypnotize the masses. So he reads these films as films that both reflect the anxiety about leaders, but also a desire for them. Um, That's partly, I think, why you see horror films in that time. Most famous, I think, is Nosferatu from 1922 and The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari from 1920. And then there's a couple others that sort of count as horror films made during the Weimar period. Were people in America and Europe also watching these films? Yes, they were. And um, especially Caligari, all over Europe and in the United States, people saw it as you know, an an excellent expressionist film with expressionist sets. So the set of Dr. Caligari, for instance, is 
painted on. It's very unrealistic looking. They would paint the light onto the walls instead of having real light. And it's, the, the sets were very jagged. Uh, so windows would be jagged. Beds would be jagged. Everything was sort of outlandish looking, and it reflects the character's inner turmoil. What about Nosferatu? Okay, Nosferatu is a, is a Dracula film, but the Dracula figure is very different looking. So while the American Dracula that we know from 1931, Bela Lugosi, is suave and sort of sexy if you get into Draculas, this Nosferatu is a feral-looking, animal-looking creature with long fingers and sloping shoulders, and he looks like an animal. He also looks like the anti-Semitic caricature of a Jew. And so at the beginning of any horror film, and Nosferatu too, you have the everything is great, everything's happy, the, the couple is in love, you see them with flowers, everything's good. And yet, as in every horror film, there are red flags. The wife looks a little bit unhappy. They're in separate rooms. And then there's the doubling. And this is true in almost every horror film. I would say almost in every film. The protagonist, um, in this case, the Jonathan Harker figure, is someone with whom we identify. And we feel that he's the good guy. But he is constantly doubled. We see him in a mirror. We see him doubled by the Dracula figure. He's doubled by the bad guy. And so part of what the movie is telling us is that the bad guy and the good guy are two sides of the same thing. And as in every Dracula film, there's a scene where the Jonathan Harker character enters the castle and sits down at the table and has a meal in front of the Dracula figure. And we see the two of them, we see the Dracula figure watching Jonathan Harker eat. And at the heart of the film, I think, um, is the idea that we're all killers, but humans disguise their murder by dressing it up with cups and knives and forks, while the Dracula figure just sucks blood out of people. He's just a simple killer, but they're doubles of each other. And that's sort of the root of the horror, I think, is, is coming face to face, as he does with Dracula, with the animal within, with, with what we are. And I think horror wouldn't be scary if it wasn't about us. And what about the anti-Semitism? Is it, is it exploring and horrified by anti-Semitism? Or is it sort of unaware of its own anti-Semitism and just depicting it? I think it's really hard to say with Nosferatu. I am hesitant to say that it was an overtly anti-Semitic film, but it's certainly a film that's, I would say, unconsciously or perhaps somewhat consciously using that anti-Semitic imagery um, to be scary. It's, it's meant to be scary. So how did these early horror films influence scary movies that were made in America in the years following? Well, they certainly did. Um, first of all, everybody was watching these, and the German film industry actually got, got much richer during World War I because the, the army yeah. was paying for films. And so even though Germany was totally in financial trouble after World War I, the film industry was really doing well. And so they could export their films. And so people were watching them and learning from them. And then as filmmakers and artists began to leave Germany, at first because of perhaps um, financial reasons, and then because of the Nazis uh, coming to power, they brought their skills and their ideas and their techniques to other places. So the influence is real. Um, they, they really did bring those German themes to the United States. Do you have a favorite scary movie or something that you're about to dive into? Um, I love watching Rosemary's Baby over and over, which I also teach. And I love The Orphanage, um, J.A. Bayona. It's a film from 2002 or something about a young woman and her husband who moved back to the orphanage where she grew up 
in order to kind of start over. And it, it, again, it starts out with a happy moment and, the, you know, everything's going to be great. And of course, everything goes very badly. But The Orphanage is it, it, an incredibly dark film. It's Spanish, so of course it's about the Franco past because everything in Spain is about the Franco past. But it's also about her grief at the death of her son. So there's, there's, it's a beautiful film. That's really interesting. Do you think all nations' horror film production increases after atrocities? Well, I think if you're living in a society that's not authoritarian, yes. Like, I do think that horror is one of the spaces in which we can fantasize, we can work through, to some degree, um, trauma. And, and again, you know, if you look at Nazi Germany, there were no horror films. But there were in the Weimar period, which was obviously a, a democracy, a, a, an experimental democracy, where they were trying out new things, thinking new ideas. You have horror films. And, and so I think it's a bad sign when you see horror films die out. I'm glad that there are horror films in the United States right now. It gives me hope. <laughs> <laughs> Jenny Taylor, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Thank you very much. Jenny Taylor is a German studies professor at William & Mary. Support for this episode of With Good Reason comes from the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation. This is a charitable trust created by the will of acclaimed 20th century artist Joseph Cornell that honors the memory of the artist and his younger brother, Robert. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Cassandra Deering and Aviva Casto are our interns, Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance and to Victor Bowen at WHRO in Williamsburg. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>